I'm Yvette Benavides, and this is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public. Peter Orner has said that the work of Gina Berriot is, quote, chronically underread. For him, her 1982 short story collection, The Infinite Passion of Expectation, has always been a touchstone. Orner has written that he has several copies of that book, calling his affection for it unabashed. The title story of that collection features a young waitress who lives in a depressed neighborhood in San Francisco and who goes weekly to the home of a well-to-do psychologist who is almost 80 years old. The doctor would like to possess what the girl represents by seducing her, using, as Peter Orner reminds us, quote, his eminence, his erudition, at the first opportune moment to manipulate her into bed with him. The girl would like to get closer to the things she reveres about him, mostly, it seems, his wisdom, for whatever that could mean for her, a nice house or the knowledge that comes with a long life. The doctor can never be young or beautiful again, not in the way the girl is for him. The waitress cannot have what she yearns for, not right away, and not if she cannot understand that there are other means to her particular goals. But her time is not running out as it is for him. Her sense of the infinite is different from his. Berio Orner says, finds a way to redeem those who deserve it least. The lowly waitress with her life stretching out in front of her, might not have the wealth and sophistication of her therapist, but she still has an upper hand of a kind and, quote, gives him back the nobility he so flippantly squandered. In the psychoanalysis of Sigmund Freud, experience is an après coup, a later revelation. About this transaction, Argentine writer Ricardo Piglia once said that there are, quote, two or three moments of life in which passion defines temporality and fixes its enduring sign upon the present. Passion is always in the present, but if you return to it in remembering, you live through it again as something present and luminous as the sun. Writes Peter Orner, quote, That shiny promise ahead is out there, just beyond the grasp. Berrios people can almost see it on the horizon. They can feel its heat, but they can't quite reach it. Peter Orner and I discuss the infinite passion of expectation on this episode of The Lonely Voice from Book Public. So this is the story that kind of started it all with Gina Berrio for me. The Infinite Passion of Expectation. What do you think about when you think of the story? Right, the Infinite Passion of Expectation, that is what this story is about. And, and that is where the title sends you. Of course, with Burial, we never know what's going to happen or what, you know what I mean? But I just feel like it's, it's a bold and beautiful title that is, I would say, even though, I mean, I would say it's an outlier, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you illustrate that? It's about a waitress, right? Which is just so gorgeously unexpected. You know? Here's another one of these third-person point-of-view stories from Berio that brings us in really close to these characters by turns. 
And the first one is the psychologist, the 79-year-old psychologist. And he's helping us understand the waitress. What do you make of him? What can you tell us about him? A pompous, self-aggrandizing, I wouldn't go as far to call him a pig, but he certainly could be a pig if anybody would let him. There's so much going on with the things that she's getting out of this connection with him, this sort of unspoken deal that they have. Um, She's going to live there with him when this other family that lives there with him and takes care of him is out of town. She's going to live there with him. I mean, yeah, the whole thing is just sort of unusual in that way about crossed lines. You're right. She likes to go up to, and he, I read the stories, he's up in Pack Heights, Pacific Heights, and he's this, you know, very, fairly wealthy, quite wealthy uh, psychologist. And she, you know, she's crossing into that part of the city, into that world that allows her to expand her, you know, expand her, her, her possibility. And that is incredibly exciting to her and worth the occasional comments that he makes about wanting to get married, I think. Mm-hmm. Good or bad. That's, you know, she's willing to pay the, that price. More so, I think she's also attracted to him. The ways that she wants him to read to her later on in the story, you know, all of that. Um... So, so she's entwined with this guy, but, you know, it's an hour two at a time when she is either in his office in therapy or what it sounds like is he kind of moves outside and they start taking walks together. And basically, basically what she's getting out of this is this, like you said, like she's looking up, she's able to see more. She's not, she's not mired in, in a life of the present, but starting to get this sense of, of expectation, which is incredibly, um, uh, powerful, like the, the infinite passion of expectation. It means that tomorrow is going to be better and the next day is going to be better. And therefore that's driving you in the present. But if you don't have that, you, you if you're not looking towards a greater present in the, in the way that the story is set up, you're, you're, you're not, you're, you have nothing to look forward to. And therefore there's no infinite passion. The infinite passion of what is hasn't happened, you know, mm-hmm. and not to go off on a riff, but I, I, I'm thinking of a Borges line, which is comparable to this, where he, it's in The Secret Miracle, the story of The Secret Miracle, where he says, there's nobody more powerful, <laughs> it's kind of a diss on, it's kind of a diss, but he says, there's nobody more powerful than an unpublished writer, because an unpublished writer has all that expectation, all that possibility that makes him so much more powerful than the schmucks that have uh, <laughs> published something and, and failed. So anyway, it just kind of strikes me as being like this constant, this, this looking forward, this towards, and she wants that from him. But that's, that's, that, that in itself would be, you know, okay, well, they're not that entangled. So what does Burial do? Well, then she moves into another gear. So what happens is she she ends up um, uh, living with him for a time. Why? Because he's getting older, and the family, this isn't really explained in the story, but it's almost a little bit of Burial, sort of just like, you know, 
nothing's ever wasted. So she actually makes a wonderful character out of this person. But there's a there's a, a woman and her son living in the house with the old man. The 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 husband of this little family used to live with them, but has now left the wife. So now the psychologist is in a house with a a woman whose husband has left her and his and her son, who's a track star who only appears once or twice in the story, kind of moving <laughs> through rooms all handsomely. But so anyway, but the, so then in the incredible, and I'm going to shut up. But this incredible scene uh, on page three, where the woman, you know, the wife who's been left, meets with the young waitress and says, "Look, um, I'm, I'm going uh, to visit my sister in Kansas." And then the burial, the, the narration is she had composed a song about the loss of her husband's love, and she was taking the song to her sister. Her sister, she said, had a beautiful voice. <laughs> now, it depends on when I read that, what kind of mood I'm in, whether I think it's completely hilarious and almost sarcastic, or that I take the place of the wife and I really think I got to go see my sister in Kansas. She's got a beautiful voice. She's going to sing this song about my law so you know i never i I sometimes it's a moving target but but again it's like (laughs) barrel's humor never never really cuts people down i don't think she's cutting down the uh the 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 wife but it's it's close right it's close um it's very unusual (laughs) (laughs) and like random she's going from san francisco to kansas to you know to record the song anyways wonderful the very next thing um, that we see after that is it says the psychologist took off his overcoat and cap, left on his muffler, and went into the study. And the girl is left, as it says, with the woman in this tete-a-tete position. <laughs> and that's when there's a little bit of, um, you know, uh, of this of this woman sort of staking her claim um, about the house. Uh, to this poor young girl. Exactly. It also is the pivot on which the story has to move because she says to her, hey, will you stay for a few days while I'm gone? So she needs something from her, but she's also wanting to also stake her claim. The transition at the bottom of page three after that line about her sister having a beautiful voice goes like this. The sun over the woman's shoulder was like an accomplice's face striking down the girl's resistance. So, like, Barrield is always aware of everything, and and yet she's more than willing to include stuff that would be arguably inessential. But this story's only seven pages. But that light coming through the window was like an accomplice's face. And it also makes this idea of accomplice... Like you have an accomplice for a crime, right? What's the girl's crime? Why would Burial suggest that the waitress is somewhat arguably criminal? You know what I like about that? And I've marked that whole section starting with the sun. It just seems like a light bulb or door opening for this girl to finally have a little bit of power to say back to this woman, he asked me to marry him, knowing that she would not and knowing why she had told the woman. And then the next line, because to speculate about the possibility was to accept his esteem of her 
And as if that weren't enough, the next line, at times it was necessary to grant the name of love to something less than love. I mean, it's not the most appropriate time to tell her this, and she does it anyway, um, because that line, at times it was necessary to grant the name of love to something less than love. Because to speculate a possibility was to accept his esteem of her. She just, by, by saying it out loud to another character, it's, it's giving it some respect, even though we know, again, the 2020 reading, but I think the 1982 reading too, it's creepy. The dude is creepy. But she's speaking the same language as this woman. She's using the same strategy. I feel, it feels to me like there's a little bit of a liberated waitress, this liberated character who's sort of found her voice for the first time in the story, even though it's a little bit of a lie. <laughs> it's a way to sort of you know push her off, and they're sort of in the same league, but now she can defend herself against this other woman who's really after the same thing. Not the house, right? I mean, the woman's after the house, the girl's after herself. I mean, some, there, something else is going on, as we'll see. But I don't know. It, it's it's a section of the story that, that like you, I'm, I, I feel a couple of ways about. Like, oh, like, oh, why'd she have to do that? But she is perfectly human. I really like that she doesn't come through the story like this perfect, saintly no. being. No, and, and, and like I just was thinking about something you just said. I mean, why does she agree to do this? I'm not sure she knows why. You know, I agree she's looking after herself, but I'm not sure, like us all, she's entirely aware of that. You know, I mean, I think she can put words to it sometimes, but mostly it's, you know, I mean, if he's helped her enough at this point, you'd think it would be enough and she could say, you know what, I'm not able to stay there that's going to be uncomfortable because she knows this is going to be a problem. And she walks right into it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like she's surprised about how he reacts when she spends the night in that house. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a couple of places where she talks about when she walks with him, when he takes her arm and puts it in the crook of his, and then she walks differently. She, has, she sort of has to walk differently just to sort of stay up. And just so she won't trip it's like there there are whenever he's sort of in her zone she has to conform but but really they're just so entirely alone not only is your, are you right for this story but i think you're right for this writer in the sense that her characters no matter how much they fall into the well of other people are alone at the same time which is our you know isn't that the great you know tragedy of, of not to be too overblown but you know I mean we're separate together separate together constantly and I you know I, I think it's only in a story like this that it makes it more um uh, of uh, more illuminated I guess yeah. I'd say and I think about the details in the in the house it's this gorgeous beautiful house and yet what has the guy got on the wall, <laughs> the great psychologist, the, the, the friend of, of Otto Rank and Freud, uh, and pinned to the wallpaper 
were pages cut from magazines of another decade. That's also sad. The faces of young and wholesome beauties, girls with short, marshaled hair, cherry red lips, plump cheeks, and little white collars. She had expected the faces of the mentors of his spirit, of Thoreau, of Gandhi, of the other great men whose words he quoted for her like passwords into the realm of wisdom. (laughs) Again, I think she's being funny here. I mean, obviously she's been funny with the pinups, but also even the realm of wisdom. I mean, come on. She's not serious. The reason I like that section that you read is because in the same way that she can have the son as the accomplice and say he asked me to marry him and do this totally you know kind of weird negative thing um when she walks into this space of this person that she holds in such high regard um he's just a guy (laughs) you know he's just a guy and i you know he's there she is in the inner sanctum of the of the space i mean why would she ever be in her psychologist's uh private space and and it's like this whole other world right after that the woman says this house is ours what's his is ours and then she says there was a cringe in the woman's body so slight a cringe it would have gone unnoticed by the girl but the open coat seemed hung upon a sudden emptiness that whatever here is empty and then a paragraph below that alone she set her suitcase on a chair just alone this empty that can you read that sentence again about the coat open there was a cringe in the woman's body so slight a cringe it would have gone unnoticed by the girl but the open coat seemed hung upon a sudden emptiness this woman doesn't miss anything i'm talking about the waitress Mm -hmm. she doesn't miss it she sees that well once once they're alone the psychologist and the girl he goes to embrace her. He says, we are both so thin. So the other thing about Berio is when she, she's so selective about the dialogue. And for him, the first thing out of his mouth, they're finally alone. Nobody else is around. So part of that for me, it's really kind of sad, is so she's this, you know, this thin girl, young woman, and he's so self-conscious about his own frailty in that moment as he goes in for a clutch as he said he's just a guy mm-hmm. but also in burial nobody is just anybody that's the that's the you know and i just feel like the temptation that that i would certainly have and i'm probably a lot of other people would have to sort of undermine this guy out of existence which 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 is partly i think what happens and i sometimes when i read this story i really feel like and not to cut to the end but you know, that she really does sort of pound him into, into you know, into dust. Mm-hmm. And then this morning when I read it and I said, I, I thought to myself, no, that's, that's not what happens. Like, in, in spite of everything, she, she props him up for a little bit longer. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, it depends on how I, when I read it. But I think you're right. I think there's a, this ambivalence with her that she could say to the other woman, he's asked me to marry him, um, and then just sort of know that she's there temporarily. She's there to take care of him, but who knows what else could happen. And then once she 
once she's in that space and it becomes glaringly apparent what's about to happen or could happen, she's out. She's out of there. She's out of that space and will stay away for as long as she has to. Right. And then another pivotal scene comes up. So what do you make of that? Right before she comes back and he makes this terrible declaration that uh, makes her so upset. But um, what do you think about this idea that she has to flee? Like us all, this character says in the moment, sure, I'll stay. And maybe it'll be maybe it'll be nice. And we already know that she enjoys it up there in the fancy part of the city. And, you know, this would be a nice little break from her neighborhood. And then and he doesn't waste any time as she must have known would happen. Right. Because on the very first paragraph, he says, will you marry me? But then she realizes when she gets there and it's the door closes on the, the wife and kid who, was, who are living with him, then they're together and she's faced with the, this time with him. And it, it's, you know, the story's so short, but, and as a, somebody who's a San Franciscan, the, what I always think of when I think of this story is really not the, the to be honest, not the relationship between the psychologist and the waitress, but this, this tram ride that the waitress takes out to to the ocean, which you can do on the J. Um, you can go almost to the to the Pacific on the on the train, and uh, and that's what she does. Um, she rides the, tr- the the tram out to the end of the line and sits there while the, the tram operator is taking a break. Um, it's one of the most I think one of the most beautiful sections of the story um, when that happens and roaming out into the night to avoid as long as possible the confrontation with the unknown person within his familiar person now again I don't quite believe that because I think she knew this unfamiliar person but maybe didn't think he would act on it maybe thought he was all jokey right Mm -hmm. let's have our honeymoon in Mexico but now when she's faced with it no this guy's serious (laughs) this guy's he's not He's not kidding. Then she flees out into the night. She rode a streetcar that went towards the ocean and at the end of the line remained in her seat while the motorman drank coffee from a thermos and read a newspaper. From over the sand dunes came the sound of the heavy breakers. She gazed out into the dark, avoiding the reflection of her face in the glass. But after a time, she turned towards it. And this, this, is, the, this is what I always remember her turning towards her own face in the in the in the half dark of the of the tram and obscure uh half dark and obscure her face seemed to be enticing itself into a future of love and wisdom like a future beauty and the crazy thing about burial among the many crazy things for me is how she can get away with using those almost ridiculous words like wisdom and beauty. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but but this but it's the it's the waitress talking. She's trying to talk her way up to this. You know? Mm-hmm. But but Beryl is not afraid of using the word beauty in a story, which is something I'd be terrified to do, frankly. So um but it's that's the scene that, that always gets to me where mm-hmm. she goes out and sits there she says, I don't even know why, because it has nothing, you know, it doesn't, it's not a plot point that moves the story. No, but it is a, 
it is a moment where she's confronted with it, with this, like that she has to make a decision and she leaves and and where does she go here? So it does become a very important space and it is beautiful. But I was gonna say too, she says wisdom first. She says wisdom first, you know, and wisdom is one of those words is that, you know, I think a a lot of us want to be smart before anything else. And I think she, I think she's so desperate to just fast forward and have wisdom for whatever reason that she seems to be so taken with what the psychologist can represent and his beautiful mind and all that. But it it feels like, like, okay, youth, check, beauty, check. (laughs) (laughs) But what she really wants is what she doesn't have right now, right? Isn't it always the way? Or or, or thinks she doesn't. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and it is the second time in two pages she's used the word wisdom, which, again, I would think would be more than once would be enough for like an entire career of short story <laughs> writing and she used it twice in two pages. So, but yeah, I think she, because I think she still believes that he does have that. The thing that happens next when she goes back and he's sitting there and what does he say to her? He sat up erect, carving his long bony graceful hands. What does he say? He says, uh, he said, you are cold. You may never be able to love anyone, and so you will never be loved. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a curse from the top of the mountain. <laughs> you will never be able to love, and you, and you will never be loved, which, as you said, is not her goal anyway. So who cares? But, of course, it, you know, nobody wants to hear this. She says, in terror, trembling, she sat down. He had perceived a fatal flaw at last. <laughs> you know, last time we talked about poor Eli in the overcoat, being unloved and feel like here here he is again here she is unloved so the trappings of of an overcoat or of beauty or of youth or whatever what do, what do they even mean there's so much more going on her loneliness is about something else her loneliness is is not about being physically attractive to this other person right and presumably this isn't something that she has any trouble with out in the world, but we don't know mm-hmm. what her life is like. But I feel like she, she's reaching for something other than, you know, a boyfriend or whatever. I mean, and yet he uses that to sort of just to, just to kind of slap her down in that moment. And of course, yeah, I mean, you, this guy you revere is suddenly kind of taking such a cheap shot at you. But maybe one you also half believe, you know, oh, maybe that is, this guy knows, maybe it is my problem. But look how much, look how much he knows her. Because what does she do next? Well, before that, he says, you can change, however, there's enough time to change. That's why I to. That's why I prefer to work with the young. I mean, this guy's license should be taken away. And, and you know, then she's like, all right, I'm going to bed. She goes upstairs, closes the door, and she hears him in the hallway, and here he comes again. <laughs> Wait, what's the line of him hearing him in the hallway? Which is a really nice, you know, it's, it's so, in a story like this, because now we're actually getting to some plot. What the hell happens? But Burial, if you rush to the, to the happens, you miss, 
you miss stuff. And the, <laughs> what what he what happens is when she closes the door, she sat on the bed, unable to stop trembling. That became even more severe in the large, humble bedroom, unable to believe that he would resort to such trickery. This man who had spent so many years revealing to others the trickery of their minds. Great. Mm-hmm. And then she heard him in the hallway and in his room, fussing sounds, discordant with his familiar presence. <laughs> It's just like, you know, of course, I mean, he's getting undressed or whatever. Well, we know he is because what happens now. But, you know, he, it's just like weird that she's like in there. I don't know. This is an off to the side. But once I, 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 a few years ago, for various reasons I don't need to get into, I found myself living with somebody I did not know and I didn't speak to. And I was renting a, a room in, a, in an apartment that was somebody else's. And I remember sitting in there with the door closed and just kind of listening <laughs> to this person and what they were doing. It's just like everything sounds louder when you're in that kind of situation. And I feel like, you know, she's sort of listening to, you know, everything. But I mean, it's pretty normal what he's doing. He's gone to his room. He's opened a drawer, right? Because he's a person. But anyway. But the fussing sounds discordant with this. I just picture him like bumbling around, like tripping, or I don't know what's going on out there. Because right, he's supposed to be reading, you know, he's supposed to be reading Thoreau or Melville or something yeah. in study, turning the pages. So she wants to prove him wrong. She wants to make sure that he understands that she's not cold. And so it says she knew that the longing was not for him, but for a life of love and wisdom. There was another way to prove that she was a loving woman, that there was no fatal flaw, and the other way was to give herself over to expectation as to a passion. And and, and this is where, sorry, to, but no. where where I think she's like, I I think she's, I mean, I would just say in my in like as a story writer, she's gone she's gone mad, right? That she's <laughs> that she thinks that that, and I think anybody reading that line out of context would think all right, maybe I'll skip this. You know what I mean? This is so, so thematically directed, yeah. right? And, and, and I would, I've been trying to think all morning, like, well, why isn't it, you know, why are those using, again, these sort of charged words and wisdom for a third time? How does she get away with it? And I, I feel like, because it's the way, I mean, today, because it always changes, but I feel like the, you know, the waitress is the writer and she uses these, notions it's her thinking you know i'm gonna she's like literally kind of taking his teachings and trying to apply them to this night it's never going to work but it but but it's very human it's very natural that for this character to do that i don't and i might be wrong but if it's the writer interjecting this the story fails but i love that idea it's like the wizard of oz right it's like the scarecrow I just want a brain. I just want a brain. I just want a brain. And 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 it's just so simple. So here she is, youth and beauty, but she's after something else, right? We're, we're always chasing the other void, the next void that opens up in front of us, this huge, you know, yawning gap that we have to sort of figure out. And for her, it's this idea. And if he ever said, you know, young lady, (laughs) a few hours a week with me, (laughs) wisdom shall be yours. So she's like, my brain, my brain, (laughs) wisdom. So I I don't know. I kind of like, 
I, I like what you're saying about the overuse of this word and, and what does it even mean, really? But for her, it means the key. It's Which, you know, I've read the story, I don't know, 30 times. I, ha- I never noticed she used wisdom once, much less three times, really. <laughs> you know, so. That's very old, yeah. But, but uh, you know, I, and, and we've sort of crossed the threshold of the story <laughs> in a way that, like, almost like, you know, we could, t- I mean, we could talk for another three hours, right? But, but now here we are. He is at the door of her bedroom, and he had removed his shirt, and the lamp shone on the smooth flesh of his long chest, on flesh made slack by the downward pull of age. He stood, in, and then she, she doesn't... She doesn't leave. She doesn't doesn't cut away. That could almost be enough. It's certainly enough, but for burial, it's not. He stood in the doorway, silent, awkward, as if preoccupied with more important matters than this muddled seduction. I mean, it's that second sentence that rescues him almost from the muddled seduction itself by putting a name to it, really. And I don't want to act like I'm explaining, but... Kind of to have him there as the image would would be enough, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. It, it's got to be. He's sort of like his brain. He's not. He's not into it. He's doing this because this is what he's always done, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But now he's he's gotten so old, barely is in it anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's so so it becomes instead of pathetic, it becomes just sorrowful. I like the space in between the paragraphs coming up where it says rising early because we don't really know what happened you know she she gives herself over to expectation as to a passion and it's not super clear did she did, did they spend some time together or did she go to sleep was does this mean she gives herself over to expectation which means not what is her passion is her passion to spend time with him or is her passion for herself? Where is the expect right? So I'm not. It's it's a little ambiguous. I don't know what happened, but the note indicates that maybe not very much happened. And he says, and he's off on his walk, and he says, "And I still love you." I think you're right. I mean, to think it's ambiguous for for sure. And I I feel like there's a, this line earlier in that. A paragraph, but lying alone, observing through the narrow panes the clusters of lights atop the dark mountains across the channel. First of all, the, just her description of light, uh, you know, of, of this part of the world is very sparingly, but it, you know, it, it's a very dramatic place to live, and it's always there. But I think that she, again, while she's lying in bed, applies what she's sort of taking from him, which is to live a life of expectation. It doesn't mean she's going to open the door and let him in the bedroom, although that's certainly possible. I think she just sort of talks herself to sleep with with that idea, expectation, Mm -hmm. of the life that's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, the next month, when she's out of this weird house. How do you feel about reading the last starting with the with when she could not hear him anymore from when and she... you started this by saying that this was sort of the gateway into this writer and absolutely it was for me certainly the first story i read by her in the copy i'm holding 
you know, a long time ago. And this, and it was this ending that I was like, I'm going to be with this, this woman forever, basically. And I knew it. I knew it. So what happens in the, in the second half after the last part of the story, after the space break is that he goes up the mountain the next morning, leaves her a note. And then they don't speak for a year. He leaves, he leaves her a loving note, a joking note. Like, it's all good. Don't worry. It's all good. Actually, then they spend another night together and he does the same thing. But even the seduction is even more uninterested. <laughs> like He takes <laughs> off his shirt. He appears again. But even he's like less. And he's actually that the, the actually the, the twist on that is she hope he's hoping and praying that she does not take him up on it. Mm-hmm. The last thing in the whole world he wants to be is in her bed at this point because he's past all that, mm-hmm. probably physically, but also mentally. It's heartbreaking in a way, you know, and Beryl doesn't, like, I feel like she pounds on this guy, but then she makes us love him. Mm-hmm. That's the, anyway, this is a year later and they meet on the beach. I believe they're on the beach um, where they, where the story started, really. They take these walks together from the cliff down to the beach. And so she is at the bottom waiting for him to come down the stairs. The only difference she could see watching him from below was that he descended the long stairs with more care as if time were now underfoot. Other than that, he seemed the same. But as they talked, seated side by side on a rock, she saw that he had drawn back unto himself his life's expectations. They were way inside, and they required now no other person for their fulfillment. Gina Berriot is the author of The Infinite Passion of Expectation, published by North Point Press. This story can also be found in the collection Women in Their Beds, published by Counterpoint Press, with an introduction by Peter Orner. Peter Orner is the author of six books, including Maggie Brown and Others and Am I Alone Here? Thanks for joining us on The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public. You can write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.